down. Uh, let's pray this morning. Lord, um, thank you for your word, God. Thank you um, that you have revealed the mystery to us, Lord, this morning, that um, your love and grace and the saving work of your son is not a mystery, God, um, that you want us to come to you through your son and uh, you'll wash us whiter than snow. So I just thank you for that, Lord. I pray that these words that you've given me uh, will go out clear, Lord, and concise. Um, and just if there's anything here that I, I have, I've written on my own, Lord, that you just uh, not allowed them to leave my mouth. So we just offer this time to your name. Amen. Amen. So Ephesians 2, verse 11. Um, and it's been a little while since I was in Ephesians up here. Um, so in the past uh, two and a half chapters here, it's been a message from Paul to the Gentiles about the truth of our identity in Christ, that through the death and resurrection of Christ, you've been adopted into the family of God. You've been signed and sealed with the stamp of the Holy Spirit, and that guarantees your inheritance in heaven. And so he goes on, he leaves chapter 1, goes into chapter 2, and he continues to explain that as children of God, you, you have benefits. You have benefits as being a child of God. And, and the big benefit here is the power, the power available to us through the Holy Spirit, and it's the same power that was used to raise Christ from the dead. And so last time we ended um, with Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. So let's read that before we go into verse 11 here. So verse 10 of chapter 2 in Ephesians. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So we're created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand. And this is a bit of a foreshadowing for you guys here as we go through the text this morning. Keep an eye on how many times that we read in here that something is in Christ or, or because of Christ or through Christ or, or somewhere like that. So let's go verse 11. Therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision, by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ." So to set this up of what's going on here, we need a little bit of a backstory first of what was actually going on in the world at this time. And, um, you know, to us, this gets preached all the time, right? Anyone that's come to CTK, even one Sunday, will have heard Matt tell you basically, basically this in a nutshell. By the blood of Christ, we're saved, right? I think we've all heard that here. But to the Jews and the Gentiles of this time, in about 62 AD when this was written, this message that the blood of Christ saves you was just, it was just insane to hear. They, cu they couldn't comprehend or fathom what that even means. You know, for centuries, the people of Israel, they'd been living according to the law that was given through Moses. And we've been reading it, as, uh, as Darcy was saying during announcement. We've been reading it every Wednesday. Every Wednesday, we go through a book of the Bible. And the past few weeks, we've been going through, we just finished Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers. And, and a huge part of those books is the people of Israel getting rules and laws and God giving his chosen people instructions on all sorts of things, you know, on circumcision, on animal sacrifice, what they can eat, how to be pure before God, and, and how they're set apart from the rest of the world at that time. 
And the people of Israel are God's chosen people. Deuteronomy 7, 6 says, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. And the people of Israel, they weren't chosen because of their numbers or because of whatever reason, but, but they were chosen because of God's covenant with Abraham. And so now here we are during the time of, of Jesus and, and, and around 62 AD, and these non-Jews, they were trying to do things that the Jewish people, they were aghast at. They couldn't believe what was going on. You know, the Gentiles, they were coming to Jesus, but, but they weren't getting circumcised. They'd come to the altar and sacrifice animals, but they'd actually collect the blood coming off the, off the altar and then take that blood home with them and use it to prepare their meals. And, and, um, and it was just stuff that the, the people of Israel were like, whoa, this is not, what is going on here? This is not what the law tells us to do. And in the temple, actually we have a picture of, of the temple. In the temple, they had a, a physical wall of separation and, um, and that, that wall separated the Jew and the Gentile so that they wouldn't be worshiping together. And that's actually, that's a dove. There we go. So, the, so you can see there the court of the Gentiles. It goes around. And if you see at the bottom here, this isn't the best picture, but the bottom there is a, is a little fence. So it wasn't really a, a wall, but it was like a little fence that went around the outside. And no Gentile was allowed to go past that fence into the temple building. We won't get into the court of women and all that other stuff, but... <laughs> um, so the Gentiles had to stay outside that fence because they, did, they, they were like, whoa, 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 you're not allowed to come in here. This isn't, uh, this isn't how this works. And, and that's actually one of the big reasons that right now Paul, Paul is writing Ephesians while and in house arrest. One of the reasons he was in house arrest right now is because he was... He was spreading the message of Jesus to Gentiles. And he was accused of bringing a Gentile um, past that fence into the, into the inner, inner walls there, onto the, into the Jewish side. So on, so on one side, if you get the picture here, on one side you got the, the people of Israel, right? The, the chosen people of God. They're following all the Old Testament rules. And then you got the Gentiles. And these gosh darn Gentiles just aren't keeping the rules, Dang it. They're just screwing everything up. And, and then on the other side, you got the Gentiles who are just, just trying to do whatever they can to come to Jesus, right? They've heard this message and they're like, wow, we want to be a part of that. They're, they're making their own churches. They're just basically doing whatever they can. And they don't understand the laws and the rules and, and things just aren't meshing together between the people of Israel and the Gentiles. And there's just a lot of strife and division amongst Jew and Gentile. And there was so much so that at one point in the book of Acts, actually, we, we read about a crew of uh, pretty heavy hitter apostles um, that come to Jerusalem. They, all, they go to Jerusalem and they have a meeting with a council there, a council of, of spiritual leaders there, just, just to try and clear some things up once and for all. Guys like Peter, like Paul, uh, like Barnabas and James, they were all there and they went to have a meeting and and they wanted to come to a final conclusion once and for all on what's the, what's the deal here. And so they came to a conclusion based on teachings from Jesus and, and revelations from, of, of verses from God and, you know, verses like in John 10, 16, 
Jesus says, and I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. Or in Romans eleven seventeen, it says, but if some of the branches were broken off, and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others, and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree. And, and Peter, if you remember, Peter just came from Caesarea where he, where he, uh, he had visions on the roof. He had visions of, of, of the sheet coming down with the animals on it and God proclaiming them all as clean. And then Peter left that and went to, to the Gentile centurion's house where, where all those Gentiles in his, in his family were, were saved and, and filled with the Holy Spirit and were speaking in tongues and stuff. And, and, and Peter, couldn't, he couldn't believe that, that this Gentile was, was filled with the Holy Spirit. So back at the council, at the council of meeting with the apostles and all the, the spiritual leaders, they come to this decision. And James stands up and says, um, he stands up and says, it is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Instead, we should write to them, telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from the meat of strangled animals, and from blood. So basically, James stands up in front of all these people and says, I mean, let's have some basic rules here, but at the end of the day, let's not make it difficult for these Gentiles to come to, to, come to God. If people want to come to Christ, let's let them. So they tried to put to rest the bitterness and, and confusion between Jews and Gentiles, but after thousands of years, it's not going to change overnight, right? It's, and so in the next chapter and a half, Paul continues on to address the Gentiles regarding their place in the body of Christ. So let's read verse 12. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. So Gentiles, you and me, you were separated from God, atheos, the, word, the root word of atheism, meaning without God. And how terrible of an idea is that? You know, w- without God, you have no hope. Without God, you have no light. Without God, your burdens are heavy. Without God, you're, you're full of fear. And there's nothing that you as a human can do to change that. There was a time that you were in the flesh. There was a time that you were alienated to the commonwealth of Israel and you were strangers to the covenant of promise. You had no hope and you were without God. Verse 13, But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. So Christ himself is our peace. The Greek word for peace being erene, meaning unity and accord. And, and so, so when we talk peace with God, we're not talking about just a ceasefire and war. We're not talking about you're walking in, you know, the heart of the creek and you see someone flash a peace sign. We're talking unity and accord with God. Romans 5.10 in the New Blake Version says, We were once enemies of God, but through Christ we are now unified to God. And so as I was thinking of, of the word peace, it can be hard to understand, right? It's one of those words where you just throw out there, you, go, you just kind of say, you go, hey, hey, peace to you, right? 
peace, peace and blessing to you. And, and, but you don't really think about what it means. You just, hey, peace, peace to you. But when you comprehend it as, as unity and accord with God, uh, it just takes on, a, <laughs> takes on a bigger meaning, which is actually a little more daunting than even just trying to think of the word peace in, in one aspect. Hey, hey, may you have unity and accord with God, our creator of the heavens and the earth. And so here's just a little challenge for you in your next coming months, years, or, or whatever. As you read through your Bible, when you read the word peace, replace it with unity and accord with God. Here's a couple examples we'll give. John 16, 33, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace, unity and accord with God. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Or Philippians 4, 6, and 7, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your requests to God and the unity and accord with God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. You see, Christ Jesus himself is our peace. He is our unifying force to God. Jesus answered, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. In Jesus, the laws of the Torah have been fulfilled. You see, the, the laws of the Torah demanded that, that a sinning soul should die. The law also dictated that an animal may be in, in place of the man. In the death of Christ, the Jew who couldn't uphold the law and the Gentile who had no relation to the law have both been reconciled by the cross. You see, God with his church, you and me, has made a new covenant. In the Old Testament, he made a covenant with Abraham. And in the New Testament, he's made a covenant with the church. You're Peter, and on this rock, I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. You see, through Jesus, we have direct access to God. Through Jesus, we have peace with God. Through Jesus, we have hope with life. Through Jesus, we have a new covenant with God. And through Jesus, we have unity and accord with God our Father. Jesus Christ is the mediator to our new covenant. And his death on the cross is, our whole, is, is the basis of the whole promise. That, you know, at the Last Supper, what did Jesus say? This cup that was poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Every time we partake in communion, we remember the new covenant in the blood of Christ. We remember that if we turn our hearts towards Christ, He'll forgive us of our sins. You, yourself, sitting there right now, were once separated from Christ. I was once alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. You had no hope, and you were without God in the world. But now, by the blood of Christ, you've been brought near. Let's go verse 14 through to 16. For he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. So that he might create in himself one man in place of the two, so making peace. Paul here isn't talking about the, the Thanos snap here, spoiler alert, where two become one, for all you Avengers fans out there, where half the population dies. He's talking about 
about at, at that time, the, the Jewish people, the people of Israel, they'd call, they'd call non-Jewish Christians Gentile Christians, which became a bit of a derogatory term. They weren't really Christians. They're Gentile Christians. They don't, you don't have to listen to what they say. But Paul's trying to get it through to everyone here that, that through Christ, he, in verse 16, might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, killing the hostility. Verse 17, And he came and preached peace to you, unity in accord with God to you, who were far off, and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Some of you guys who were here uh, this past Wednesday um, heard Matt talk a little bit about uh, Joe's memorial service, and, and I went to Joe's memorial service there this past week, and let me tell you, it was a good one. <laughs> There's some serious characters there. If you guys don't know Joe, he was the homeless guy, um, Guitar Joe, that lived on the, well, he didn't live down there, but you'd often see him down on the corner in front of the, front of Molly's Reach there and playing his guitar. And let me tell you, it's just awesome to see all the people there at the old United Church there um, just, just celebrating uh, their buddy who passed away. And you know, Joe was one of those guys who I'd always drive by in my nice truck with my nice clothes on and I'd look at Joe and just, and then turn the other way, keep driving, right? And, uh, you know, I'd always resist. I was like, oh, I should get to know that guy. Like, I know Daryl and Matt and, and some, some of the people around this church. Kind of know him, talk to him once in a while. He'd poke his head in here. And I'd always think, oh, I should get to know him. Like, I, I just feel like he's a guy I want to get to know. And, and uh, I know stuff like, like Matt's prayed with him once or twice. So I know he was on, on the way there. And I thought, I'd like to get to know him and, and get to know him better. So one day after church, actually, the, just the week before he died, uh, the Sunday before he died, I'm leaving church and it was a it was a crisp, sunny, cold day and I'm leaving church and I drive up the hill and, and I see Joe there and I go, meh, and keep driving. And then about halfway up the hill, I just, the Lord just like was like, no, try again, buddy. <laughs> so I kept going up, turned around, came back down the hill, parked, ran by and was like, hey, Joel, can I grab you a coffee? So I grabbed him a coffee, put it in his hands, I'm Blake, got out of there. And I think that was God's way of showing me here to preach peace to all men. Preach the unity with God, not just to people in the church right here, but to those near, to those far, to those rich, to those poor. Because it doesn't matter who you are, we both have access to the Father, through the Spirit. Through one Spirit. Doesn't matter who you are. We're both together in one body. Verse 18, in one Spirit to the Father. And when, when we preach peace with God, when we preach unity and accord with God, what happens? Well, verse 19 tells us, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. 
So we all become a part of the same household, whether new or longtime Christian. Luke 15.10 tells us that there is great rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over just one sinner who repents. See, through Christ, when we preach unity and accord with God through Christ, you aren't a second-class citizen. You aren't, the, you aren't the black sheep of the family. You know, once you're in, you're in. You go see, you go see Andy Blomhard and you learn that secret handshake that he gives you, and you're in. Just kidding, you don't need the secret handshake, but definitely go find out the secret handshake from Andy next week. It doesn't matter who you are or where you're from. Jesus preached unity to God through one man himself. And this household of God that we're a part of, verse 20, says is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. And the key here is that it's, it's the message of the apostles and the prophets, right? We're not built on them. It's the message that they preach, Christ. The cornerstone to the holy temple of the Lord. The temple is built with all sorts of different stones of people in the church, right? Young stones, old stones, Jew, Gentile, bald, not bald. Some of us rapidly getting bald. Stones with the gift of prophecy, the gift of healings, wisdom, tongues, miracles. You want to help build the temple of the Lord? Just preach Jesus. That's it. Just preach unity and accord with God through Jesus, our Savior. Use your gifts to lead people to Jesus. God's going to build this church with or without you. And so as we're joined together to grow a holy temple in the Lord, love people like Jesus loved you. You know, I'm sad that I didn't get to uh, preach Jesus to Joe, actually. I didn't, feel, I didn't feel led just to bring Joe a coffee. I felt led to, to preach Jesus to Joe. But I just gave him a coffee and took off and thought, eh, there's always another time. I've waited a couple years since I first met him breaking in here. <laughs> What's another couple years, right? Because you know what I like to do? I like to show up to church once a week for two hours, make sure nobody sits in my seat right over there, make sure I get my coffee with my fancy little creamers. Um, oh, yeah, I'll sing. I'll listen to Matt, but you know, maybe your Bible's on your phone, so you're going, oh, let's see what's on Facebook. Let's see if I can get on the buy and sell this morning or whatever, right? I, I, you tune out. And then I call it good for a week. And then you do it all again next week. But you know what else I like to do? And I like to prepare a sermon because it takes me out of my comfort zone. It pushes me to know Jesus better. It brings me to unity and accord with God. It makes me realize that I should be making disciples of all nations. That I should be using the gifts that the Lord has given me to help build the temple of the Lord hinged on the cornerstone, the saving work of Jesus Christ. Going to chapter 3. The mystery of the gospel revealed. So, in chapter 3 here, Paul goes through uh, four key things, if you're a note taker, four key things about the mystery of the gospel, which, if you don't want to listen to me, you can read too. Number one, he's going to go through what the mystery is, the heading of this, of this text here, what the mystery is. Number two, he's going to go through his role. Paul's role in the mystery. 
He's going to go through the purpose of the mystery, and then finally he's going to end it with a prayer in response to the mystery. So Paul sets some stuff up here before we get into, number one, what the mystery is. So let's read um, verse one here. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ on behalf of you Gentiles. You see, though Paul is, is physically imprisoned, he's like under house arrest. By night, he's, well, I don't know. I've heard some people say he's always chained to a Roman guard, but for whatever, for sure at night, he's chained to a Roman guard. By day, he can roam his house. He's under house arrest. So Paul's, Paul's physically restrained. He's physically bound to a Roman soldier. But spiritually, Paul is constantly bound to Christ. Though Paul is in the world, he knows that he's not of the world. He knows that he's bound to Jesus. Verse 2 goes on, Assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. The stewardship of grace in verse 2. In some translations, it says the dispensation of grace. And, uh, and so what, what is dispensation? As men in our I guess, and woman, I don't know. As men, we've broken down the periods of the Bible into different dispensations. Another word for periods or times. And, and so we, we look at the Bible as going through, there's debates, but a commonly accepted is seven different dispensations, seven different periods laid out in the Bible. And each dispensation tells and reveals about the character of God. So we're just going to go through them quickly, just for your own notes. You could spend, we could spend like two years on each of the, you know. We're just going to go through them quickly so you get it in your head of, uh, of what's going on. And again, you should be able to read already. You've cheated and seen the end result here. Number one, we got the dispensation of innocence, which is the creation of man. When God interacted freely with Adam and Eve. In number, number two, dispensation is conscience, which is between the fall of man and the flood. Then you have government from the flood to Abraham. You got the promise, which is from Abraham to Moses. You've got the law, which is from Moses to Jesus. You've got number six, grace, which is from Jesus to the rapture. And then you've got the kingdom, which is the final dispensation. Jesus comes back and we're... Woo! Going wild. And so currently we're in what's known as the dispensation of grace. And, and Paul's clear here in verse 4 and 5 that he and the other apostles have received the insight into the mystery by the Spirit. This isn't just something they came up with to keep people strung along. You know, this was clear wisdom from God. Which ancestors of the past didn't have understanding or insight into this revelation? that was revealed to Paul and, and other apostles. There's prophecy. There's prophecy in the Old Testament uh, of Gentiles coming to God through a Redeemer, but they just didn't fully understand at the time, right? This stuff was being revealed to them through the Spirit, but they didn't have the whole understanding of what exactly is going to come. And for example, in, is, in Isaiah 49.6, it says, 
I will also make you a light for the Gentiles, that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. Or in Zechariah 2, verse 11, it says, Many nations will be joined with the Lord in that day and will become my people. I will live among you, and you will know that the Lord Almighty has sent me to you. But those things that were prophesied, like I said, they, they didn't have insight into the, what we call the dispensation of grace. They didn't have insight that, that God has a plan for the Gentiles too. Even the 12 disciples, even the 12 disciples, Jesus' most close disciples on earth, they didn't have the mystery revealed to them right away. They, you know, after Jesus was erected and he's just about to be taken up into heaven, and, and, and just before he ascended, they, the disciples look to Jesus and they say, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? They just didn't understand that God still had a plan to carry out. They were just simply looking for the redemption of Israel. They didn't see that God has a plan for the Gentiles, for you and for me. And so that brings us to the mystery. And if you have a keen eye, and probably not even too keen of an eye, you'll probably have figured out what the mystery was long ago, as it's basically all that Paul's been talking about here this morning. Verse 6 tells us, This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Elsewhere in the Bible, um, different disciples preach the salvation of Gentiles through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. But Paul here, Paul's unique in the sense that he preaches that Gentiles aren't just saved, but that we're actually grafted into the tree of God. We're all attached to the same root through Christ. And, and just like at the end of chapter two, you know, we learn that we're no longer strangers and aliens, but we're fellow citizens through Christ. We're on equal ground with everyone else through Christ, the cornerstone. We're all a member of the same structure, a holy temple to God. And so we know the mystery. So that brings us to what Paul's role is in the mystery. And in verse seven, we read, of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, the, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. Paul was a minister to preach to the Gentiles, not by his own doing or choosing, but by God's grace given to him by the working of God's power. And in verse 8, you'll see there, Paul reminds us that he's the very least of all saints. And sometimes you read that these disciples, they say, oh, I'm the very least. And you go, oh, come on. You just roll your eyes, right? <laughs> Give me a break, Paul. You're the very least. Paul, you perform miracles. You spread the message of Christ. You're divinely appointed to write 13 books of the Bible. And you're going to tell me that you're the least? Give me a break. You just, you're like, oh, whatever friggin Paul like you're good man you're good just t just own it you're good but this kind of talk by Paul is the talk of a true Christian a man that knows his power comes from the grace of God a man who knows that that while he was on his way to hunt and to kill Christians God saved him and said nah I got something better for you Paul a man who understood that the privilege of God has given him to partake in the ministry of Jesus Christ. Paul called himself a minister, which, which can be known as one who takes commands from another, a servant, 
a prisoner of Christ. Paul understands here that everything he has is from God, a gift of God's grace given to him by the working of God's power. And so Paul goes on with his role in the mystery in verse 9, and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. So Paul was given the task of bringing the mystery to all peoples, to let people know about this new covenant that's been made here, to bring the light for everyone, this plan that God has hidden for ages. This plan for redemption through Christ, it wasn't some quick game time decision. God had the plan for redemption through Christ all along. It wasn't just, oh, Paul's looking kind of bored there, better give him something to do, right? No, no, God put this ministry on Paul's plate Go preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and that all things will be brought together through Christ and under Christ as he sits on the throne next to our Father. So we know the mystery. We know Paul's role in the mystery. Now it brings us to number three. What's the purpose of the mystery? Verse 10, let's read verse 10 here. So that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. The manifold wisdom of God might be known to rulers and authorities in heavenly places. Now, I'm not going to lie. I don't fully understand. I don't fully understand this because I don't fully understand the intricacies and, and understandings of what goes on in the heavenly realm. But what I do know from this text is that God is showing his angels, the rulers and authorities in heavenly places, he's showing his angels his overwhelming wisdom through you and me, his church. Angels don't have omniscience like God does. They don't, they aren't all knowing. They aren't, you know, they don't understand everything that's going on like God does. At one point, Peter talked of of things even the angels long to understand. So the angels, they long to understand the stuff that goes on, and, and they look down upon us here on earth, and they just marvel at the grace that God has given to send his own son to die for us. One of the purposes of the mystery here is to reveal his manifold wisdom to the angels by his work in the church through Jesus Christ. Another one of the purposes is to have boldness and confidence to access God through our faith. Verse 11, this was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. Because of this mystery of God, sending his own son to die for us and to bring Jew and Gentile into one family, one body, one temple. We now have access to God to come before him with boldness and with confidence. In fact, we have more access now than even the Israelites did like we learned about in, in Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. And, and, you know, we don't need to be fearful. We don't need to be ensure our, our lives are pure before coming to Christ, because, because through Jesus we come to God and he makes our lives pure. And with the Holy Spirit in us, we have unadulterated access to God. And sometimes we take that, well, actually all the time I think we take that for granted, right? Like that's a big thing. 
But because of the mystery of the gospel of Christ, we are told to come before the Lord boldly and with confidence. Confidence to come before the throne. You know, the throne, which the throne, like he calls us to come before the throne. The same throne that, that we read about is filled with fire. There's thunder and lightning in the throne room and, and there's a thousand thousands ministering to him who sits on the throne. Like we sang this morning, behold our God, come let us adore him. In, in Daniel, we see that the throne is described as, as shining like Jasper with diamond-like and an, and an emerald-like rainbow over top of him. And there's God on the throne with clothes as white as snow and, and hair like, like pure wool ruling his kingdom with Jesus on his, on his right hand. And he wants us to come to that boldly and with confidence. What else do you say? <laughs> I mean, he wants us to come to that and we can have that because we have confidence in our adoption through Christ. We have confidence in our seal of the Holy Spirit. We have confidence in the death and resurrection of Christ. We have confidence in the knowledge that God had this planned all along. This wasn't some... Quick, uh, oh yeah, quick, let's make this happen. Verse 11, according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. This, hasn't, this wasn't some quick off-the-cuff decision. He knew from the beginning of all time that things will be tied together through our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. I encourage you to go look into stuff of, of in Revelation and in Daniel, stuff of, of the throne room and, and visions of God. It's just awe-inspiring to think that God wants us to come before that, to kneel before his throne and come with confidence and ask for what we want. So before Paul goes into a prayer, he reminds the reader here, don't be sad in typical Paul fashion. Don't lose heart that I'm suffering for you because this right here is where God put me and I'm suffering for your glory. There's no issue here. So verse 14, prayer for spiritual strength. And this is an awesome prayer. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. Pro Bible tip for all you. If you ever see the words for this reason or therefore or anything like that, it's in response to what you just read. So in response to the divine saving power of Jesus Christ to bring both Jew and Gentile into one body, I will bow my knees before the Father. Paul comes to the Father in prayer, in reverence, in acknowledgement of the power of God. He prepares his heart like so many did before him. The normal stance in that day was to pray with your hands, your, your, your hands raised. But the act of kneeling here shows humility. It shows humbleness. It shows Paul's understandings of, of the importance to come to God with the holy fear. You know, though we're told in elsewhere places of the Bible to be in prayer without ceasing, pray without ceasing, there's something special, isn't there, about coming to the Lord on your knees and just setting aside time and coming to the throne that we're told to and come with boldness and confidence before reverent fear before the Lord as you think about what exactly the throne is like. So Paul's on his knees praying for the Gentiles here. And he says, verse 16, that according to the riches of his glory, 
he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love. We need to be strengthened with the power according to the riches of his glory, which, again, the riches of his glory is pretty, pretty big, if I do say so myself. (laughs) Lord, strengthen these people with power through your spirit in their inner being. Not just on the surface, but that the inner man will be strengthened with power. So that deep in your depths, you'll be strengthened according to the riches of the glory of God. Which we've talked about in Ephesians Ephesians chapter 1. Paul talked about the, the immeasurable greatness. The overwhelming riches and glory of God. It's like, you can't even, you can't even think about how big that is. You just... You try and think, I can't do it. And so why do we need that? Why do do we need to be strengthened with power through his spirit in our inner being? Verse 17, so that Christ may dwell in your heart through faith. We need the strength and power through the Holy Spirit because as a natural man, as me and my flesh, I want to sin. I want to do my own thing. I want to tune out during church. I flip-flop. Ah, I don't need Jesus today. I'm just, what am I doing today? I'm going to work today. I don't need Jesus. Like, I'm not doing any church stuff today. It's not Wednesday. I'm not leading worship this week. I don't need Jesus yet. Oh, shoot, wait. Oh, yeah, actually, Jesus, come on back here. I need some help here. Paul gives them strength that, you, that, that Jesus, that God will dwell in their hearts. Not just set up a, a Christmas pop-up shop in the mall, but truly dwell the Greek word dwell, if I'm saying this right, katiko, meaning to inhabit as one's abode. Jesus knocks on the door of our hearts and by faith we open the door and invite him in. Second part of 17 into 18, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth. As you're rooted and grounded in love, Paul prays that you will have the strength to comprehend the breadth, the length, the height, the depth, and know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with the fullness of God. God's love is measurable, that you may know the breadth, length, height, and depth. And actually, I can't put it any better than Matthew Henry. Matthew Henry puts it a good way of explaining this. By the breadth of it, we may understand the extent of it to all ages, nations, and ranks of men. By the length of it, its continuance from everlasting to everlasting. By the depth of it, its stooping to the lowest condition with the design to relieve and save those who have sunk into the depths of sin and misery. And by its height, its entitling and raising us up to the heavenly happiness and glory. Man, those measurements are so vast, aren't they? (laughs) Simple 30-foot tape measure ain't going to deal with that. It's, it's so big and vast that it simply surpasses knowledge. It even says here, to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. How am I supposed to know? How am I supposed to know? It doesn't make sense. You want me to know this, but, you, but it surpasses knowledge? How am I supposed to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge? Or in verse 19, how am I supposed to be filled with the fullness of God? 1 Kings 8.27 says, Even the highest of heaven cannot contain you. 
So how am I as a man supposed to be filled with the fullness of God? That's impossible, right? There's no way. It says it right here. It surpasses knowledge. Because of all these things that Paul just prayed for, for these Gentiles, that cannot be done, he reminds us of this in verse 20. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us. Him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think. Who's able to do such things? God can. Imagine the craziest thing you can. I was trying to, I'll let you insight into my mind. I was trying to, this week, I was trying to think, oh yeah, what's the craziest thing I can think of? I'm like, oh, imagine like, I don't know, riding an elephant like in space and then you're like going through the sun and then you turn into a, a hedgehog and then you like, and then it was like, I, God can do more. I can't even think of something crazy. God could think even more of something crazy than what I can even think of. And he can do more than what I can think of. How often do we come to prayer with the idea of, well, gee, God, I don't know. Like, uh, this is a pretty big prayer, God. I don't know if you can handle this one, right? I don't know if you've ever heard one like this. This is a pretty big one. And we put God in this little box, we, you know. But God says, according to a, the power at work within us, he can do more than you can ask or even think. So come confidently before the Lord with boldness through your faith in him. And it, if we start praying the same way that Paul prays here, Imagine the things that can be done. If you remember in chapter one, we talked about this, the idea of, of, of praying for the symptom versus praying for the root cause of the issue. And if we start, start praying like Paul does here, start praying that, that people would be strengthened with the power through the spirit according to the riches of God's glory. If we start praying that people would be rooted in love and be able to understand the length and height and depth and breadth of God's love in their lives, and we don't need to be praying for the symptoms. Verse 21 ends it, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. So as the band comes back up to, to play one more song, as I read the, this last bit here, verse 21, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever, amen. At the end of it all, at the end of all that, with the mystery of Christ and, and, and all the prayer and, and God saving us and bringing us into communion and, and one temple, what's left to do? He said it here. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations. Just give God glory. Just preach Jesus. At the end of it all, there's, there's all sorts of things we can do, right? There's all sorts of different stuff we can do to try and get to know people. We can bring them coffee. We can, we can have all these sorts of different methods of, of you know, preaching and everything. But at the end of the day, give God, give God glory through Jesus. Jesus.